Meet Candace. She's 39 and has been dealing with reflux for years. She was diagnosed with GERD by her gastroenterologist and was prescribed acid-lowering medication. It helped at first, but after a while, the burning and pressure in the upper stomach and esophagus came back. She felt like food was just sitting in her stomach, and she had constant burping after meals and could taste her food and the acid coming back up. She would often wake up with a sore throat, even though she wasn't sick. She's seen several additional gastroenterologists, but was just prescribed more acid-blocking medication like Prevacid, Omeprazole, and Nexium. She started doing her own research and saw that acid-lowering medication may not be the answer, and that can actually lower acid too much and prevent food from digesting. So she changed gears and started taking probiotics and enzymes. It helped a lot with the burping, but the heartburn was still there. That's when she came to see me. While she was already digesting better and balancing the acid in her stomach, I knew there had to be some kind of culprit that was still contributing to the acid and inflammation, so we had to explore further to solve this health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know, because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Candace. She was up to her throat with acid and indigestion, literally, and needed to find the cause. Joining me on the show today to talk more about Candace's case is Lisa Pomeroy. Lisa is a naturopath, functional medicine consultant, and the founder of Pomeroy Institute for Functional Nutrition, which offers one-on-one coaching and online training courses for health practitioners. In addition to that, she works as a clinical consultant for two of the top functional laboratories where she assists doctors and other health practitioners on how to interpret functional lab test reports and develop effective nutritional protocols. Lisa, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. So Lisa, how common is acid reflux in our society? Yeah, definitely very common. I think they say that in the Western populations, you may have GERD, which is a form of acid reflux that's more common. Uh, Maybe 20 to 30% of Western populations seem to be suffering from that. Uh, definitely in the, the population that I see with the, you know, the clients and people with GI symptoms in general, definitely very common. Yeah. Now, why do you think that it's so prevalent? I think a lot of it is there's various infections that people can pick up over the years that tend to cause that. Um, so part of it is, I think, the infections in the GI tract. Also, I think the diet, that's also a major piece, just eating foods that seem to, you know, predispose someone to that. You know, a lot of the refined processed foods nowadays, the chemicals on foods, you know, diet is another key component. So for me, that's a lot of what I'm thinking at when I'm looking at cases. You know, I like to do stool testing to see, are we dealing with some infections in the GI tract? And then I like to see a food journal to see, okay, what is this person eating? And even their habits, you know, if they're eating on the go, if they're not taking time to really, you know, sit down and rest and digest and eat their meal in peace. And, you know, that can also lead to it, you know, just their 
their behavior and their habits of eating. Now, you mentioned infections, um, and I know that those could play a big role in reflux. Can you tell us about the most common infection that can often contribute to this? Yeah, that would definitely be H. pylori, otherwise known as Helicobacter pylori. Um, It's an infection that predominantly affects the stomach. So it's a more of an upper GI infection. But that one definitely, if I if someone comes in and is complaining of GERD, they've had a diagnosis of, you know, GERD or reflux or having that heartburn, H. pylori is definitely the first thing I think of because those symptoms are just classic hallmark H. pylori. What are some of the other symptoms of H. pylori? Are there any aside from that girder reflux? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just pain, stomach pain. Sometimes it's more as your stomach gets a little more empty. People sometimes say their stomach feels like a gnawing feeling. Uh, Sometimes it's as they eat, after they eat, there's pain shortly after eating. And a lot of times we figure that food starts to transition from the stomach into the small intestine after about 90 minutes, so about an hour and a half. So if your symptoms are occurring in that first 90 minutes after eating, that often pinpoints maybe an issue with the stomach. So maybe the low stomach acid, which is something very common again with H. pylori. So I'm looking for symptoms like that shortly after eating. Um, food sitting like a rock in someone's stomach where they just feel like it's just not digesting. It's just just really heavy and then sitting there. Um, sometimes it's an aversion to protein because people, they can sense that maybe they just can't break down those heavier proteins, you know, their, their meat or beans or any of those type of things. And so they just tend to maybe go a little more vegetarian or vegan because they just avoid those foods. They know they're not digesting them well. Sometimes it's not gut related at all. So, I mean, I'm looking for the GERD and reflux, the pain, the food sitting like a rock is predominant symptoms. But for some people, it's actually they have a diagnosis of Hashimoto's. Um, H. pylori is one of the top triggers I see causing autoimmune thyroiditis. So there's another connection where they may have absolutely zero gut symptoms. They just have Hashimoto's and thyroid issues. Um, It could be skin issues especially things like rosacea. But sometimes it's, you know, acne, psoriasis, eczema, you know, can run the gamut of different skin conditions. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, other issues. They're just fatigued. And that's just such a general symptom that could be so many things. But that's where, you know, looking at these gut infections too, you can figure out, oh, this is why you're so tired. It's not because, you know, you're just a busy professional and you have three kids and you're, you know, that's certainly maybe a piece of it, but maybe it's because you have H. pylori and you're not absorbing your B12 and your B12 deficient, maybe your iron. I mean, those things are going to greatly contribute to fatigue or minerals. You need an acidic stomach to absorb your minerals. So sometimes with H. pylori, I may see sleep issues because they're not breaking down their protein into amino acids. So they're not getting their tryptophan to make serotonin and melatonin or not getting their tyrosine to make dopamine. So you can end up with mood disorders, anxiety, and some of those type of symptoms, depression, insomnia. So it really can branch out into all these other seemingly unrelated symptoms. Um, Mineral deficiencies, so zinc deficiency, magnesium, calcium. So you might see issues with, you know, bone loss because you're not absorbing those critical minerals for healthy bones. 
Or again, maybe anxiety because you're not getting magnesium, which is kind of our anti-stress mineral. Or you have white spots on your fingernails that could indicate a zinc deficiency. So those are all the things that I'm looking at as possible symptoms of H. pylori. So there's quite a few. (laughs) There are. And Lisa, I am so glad that you're mentioning all of this because I think that people don't often correlate that. And, you know, this just really goes to show how much everything in the body is interrelated. And this is something that I talk a lot about on the show. And what happens in the gut is going to affect your whole body. So like you were saying, with skin and with our mood and what happens in the brain, you know, there's just such a connection there. And, you know, stomach acid, as you mentioned too, has so much to do with this too. And what's interesting is that when people have reflux, oftentimes it may seem like it's because of too much acid and that's the culprit for reflux and burning. And that's what people think that it is. And the reason why doctors prescribe a lot of these acid lowering medication, what it very often actually is, is that there's too little acid and that can cause the same issue. And then too little acid is going to create exactly what you were speaking about, which is the um, food that's not digesting and sitting in the stomach and then not creating the mineral deficiencies and then the amino acid deficiencies because people can't break it down. And what's interesting is in Candace's case, she had a lot of these classic symptoms. Her food did sit. Um, she did feel like things weren't digesting. And a lot of that happened after she was on these lowering acid medications for a long time. Yep. And that's what we find with the low stomach acid. What it actually does is there's this little flap that is between the esophagus and the stomach called the lower esophageal sphincter or LES. And this little flap should be closed. And that's what's preventing the acid from refluxing from the stomach into the esophagus. Well, the thing that keeps that closed is acid. So if you don't have sufficient acid, then that little flap is going to get kind of loose and floppy and loses its tone. And so now it'll allow the acid to reflux up. So even though there's not a lot of acid, if it's getting up into the sensitive tissues of the esophagus where it doesn't belong, that's when you can get those classic reflux symptoms and the pain and discomfort and heartburn. Yeah. Now, when we look at these infections or things like H. pylori and some of the other infections that can go along with it, what are some of the best ways to test for H. pylori? Uh, There's several different ways of testing. Um, A lot of them I don't really care for because they have a really high percentage of false negatives. So conventional wise, you know, some of the top ways of trying to find H. pylori is sometimes a, a serum antibody test. And the problem with that is it, you know, you get a lot of false negatives, but you also can't tell if you are positive, is it is it a current infection or is it a past infection? These antibodies can hang around for a long time, so you don't know if it's something you actively have right now, which is an issue because as a clinician, I want to know what what's current, what's active, what do I need to, to get rid of right now? I don't care about what was maybe in the past and dealt with. Another way is people will do a breath test for H. pylori. I find it hit and miss. Sometimes it picks it up. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I've seen a lot of people who have done breath tests that were negative. And later when I've done my preferred method of stool testing, they've shown up positive and their symptoms were very classic pylori. So I think, you know, it's great if you get a positive on a breath test, you know, we know it's there then, but you can also get a lot of false negatives. Um, maybe even some false positives. So it's not exactly the most accurate test in my mind. 
Another test is an endoscopy and with biopsy. So they'll actually look for the H. pylori. Again, you'd think, you know, well, this is considered more of the gold standard. I see a ton of false negatives again with this. I've had people who have been to Mayo Clinic and they've had the breath test and the endoscopy and everything came back negative, yet they've had a severe iron deficiency anemia for 40 years and reflux and all these symptoms. They tested negative through Mayo Clinic and yet I'm doing the stool test and finding a positive. I do the botanical protocols and it's gone and their symptoms improve. So again, it's not my preferred method. So the what I like is doing a stool test to look for H. pylori. Now there are different kinds of stool tests. And again, quality matters. There are some that are definitely better than others at picking it up. One of my favorites is a PCR test, which looks for, it's a DNA analysis. The nice thing about that is there's no case of vacant identity because you are looking down at DNA level. There's nothing else that has that exact DNA match of H. pylori except for the H. pylori organism. So you're not getting any false positives, so to speak. You know that it's the H. pylori and it is current because if there's a very high level of H. pylori on the test, you know that that is something that has to be actively replicating and colonize the gut to produce such high levels. And that's another reason I like the PCR testing is they will do a quantitative analysis, meaning they actually count how many H. pylori organisms per gram of stool. So you know what's actually showing up. Um, sometimes this you could get a little false of a low where there actually could be more in the stomach itself. You know, that's the only tricky part about testing H. pylori in the stool is that, you know, H. pylori is mostly in the stomach. So by the time it's going all the way down the GI tract and getting diluted and coming out the other end, you have less than when you started with. So, you know, we take that into consideration, which is why the reference ranges are what they are. Um, but it is something that, you know, if you could go actually into the stomach, <laughs> you could actually find higher amounts. But, you know, I like the quantitation because that can give you a general idea. Some people just have really high levels and we know it's a nasty infection. And I have seen correlations between the people who have the higher levels are really symptomatic and often have the autoimmunity and other things going on. So PCR test is one of my favorites because another reason is you can also do the virulence factors attached to that H. pylori. And that tells you the, the pathogenic potential of that H. pylori infection, or I like to say how nasty your infection mm -hmm. is of H. pylori. <laughs> because these virulence factors, when they get attached to the H. pylori, they tend to cause things like gastric ulcers and gastric cancer, according to the research. So your run-of-the-mill H. pylori with no virulence factors can still make your life miserable. You know, it can cause the reflux and pain and B12 deficiencies and skin issues and all, all of that. But when you have those virulence factors on top of that, now you're talking that next level. Maybe you're going to get ulcers and cancer down the road. So there's just more of an urgency when I see those. It's like you don't have a very nice H. pylori, you know, of the kinds you can have. Yours is one of the worst ones. So we, we need to get rid of this as soon as possible because we don't want it to lead to those issues down the road.
Right. Of course. And I also love PCR technology. I use a lab uh, called Diagnostic Solutions Labs and they have a test called the GI map, which is one of my favorites. And it's a PCR technology and that's what we use in the practice. And I found that it has been extremely accurate at identifying H. pylori. And that's actually what we used in Candace's case and found H. pylori. In her case, she had both the H. pylori and three different virulent factors. So as Lisa is explaining, it was a kind of a nasty case of H. pylori. So we knew that we had to get rid of it. And Lisa, once we find the infection, what are some of your favorite ways to eradicate it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the conventional route is more, you know, pretty aggressive, either triple therapy or quadruple therapy, which means two to three antibiotics plus a PPI. I mean, it really, it's hit and miss again with that. Sometimes people get rid of it, but a lot of times they don't. I see maybe a 50% failure rate in many cases. Plus, it's so harsh, you know, doing two to three antibiotics. You know, maybe if you were successful in getting rid of the H. pylori, now you're left with some yeast overgrowth and some dysbiosis as a consequence. Mm -hmm. So I really do prefer the botanicals. And for me, what I've, you know, had really good results with is higher dose mastic gum combined with DGL, which is deglycerized licorice root. Um, With botanicals, we do have to do them a little bit longer. So we're often looking at a two month or 60 day protocol. But that, you know, there's a lot of research. If someone wants to search PubMed, you can find information on mastic gum. Now, even though it's called mastic gum, it isn't like a gum that you chew like bubble gum. It's a a resinous substance that comes out of these trees. But it's really, you know, it's a general stomach soother too. So it's really gentle. I don't find that people get really bad die off with it either, which is nice. But there's a lot of research showing that mastic gum is a great anti-H. pylori agent. And the DGL, the licorice root, and the, the DGL form, That the nice thing about that one is anyone can use it regardless of whether they have high blood pressure or not. Because with regular licorice root, it does have this glycerin component in it that can raise blood pressure in some individuals. Well, the DGL has removed that component. So that's no longer an issue. So the DGL, what it does kind of works with the masticum. It's a one-two punch. The masticum does more of the killing of the H. pylori. The DGL does the soothing and works as an anti-inflammatory too. Because we know that H. pylori creates a lot of inflammation in the stomach and it can kind of burrow in. It's kind of shaped like a corkscrew. It's kind of a spiral shaped organism. So if you think of like a drill bit kind of screwing its way into the stomach lining and when it burrows in, it creates a lot of inflammation. So by adding the DGL, we can start to take down some of the inflammation so that the mastic gum can penetrate better into the stomach lining and kill the H. pylori where it's burrowed in and hiding. Another reason for using the DGL is H. pylori tends to scrape away and break down the protective mucus that should line the stomach. And the issue is, you know, the acid is, you know, normally the acid should always be buffered where you have this mucus that's between the acid in the middle of the stomach and the stomach tissue. Well, if H. pylori is in there, it's broken down the mucus. Now that acid can actually touch the stomach tissue and burn and irritate it. And that's why actually a lot of people are surprised to learn that 
using hydrochloric acid as a supplement is actually a little more contraindicated where you would not want to use it if you have H. pylori. So while it's true you typically do have low stomach acid, we don't want to add the stomach acid at that point because you may not have your protective mucus. So any acid you add could actually burn and irritate your stomach. And that's what I often do find is, you know, some of these people, they've tried the hydrochloric acid capsules because they know that they do have the low stomach acid. They have those symptoms and yet they just crash and burn when they try the supplement. They just get more pain and everything's even more irritated because they've, they don't have the protective mucus. The H. pylori has destroyed it. So there's a lot more pain and irritation with hydrochloric acid. Yeah, I'm glad you're saying that. And also, I believe that the protocol itself to eradicate the H. pylori actually works a little bit better when the environment in the stomach is just a tad bit more alkaline while you're doing it. Do you agree? Exactly. Yeah. In some people from a holistic standpoint, because we're not using the PPIs to lower the acidity level, some people will put you doing a little baking soda in water in between meals. And that's kind of having the similar effect of the PPI where it's making things a little more alkaline. And so then you can maybe kill the H. pylori a little bit better is the theory. Uh, Lisa, what are some other infections that can sometimes go hand in hand with H. pylori and can contribute to more of this indigestion and acid and reflux? Yeah, with H. pylori, it has its best buddies that it likes to hang out with. Those, there's this trio of organisms that on the, the testing I see over and over. You know, you see the H. pylori. The other one you'll see is Blastocystis hominis, which is a protozoa parasite. And the third one is Diantamoeba fragilis, which is another protozoa. Sometimes you'll even see Epstein-Barr virus hanging out. It also likes to, to hang out with the blasto. So there's like three or four organisms where sometimes, you know, you get one and it's just this, you know, snowball effect. You just pile up one on top of the other because each one creates the conditions in the body conducive to the other's growth. So a lot of times on these tests, you know, sometimes not all at once because you may, you know, just like you peel an onion and you can't see what's underneath until you peel the outer layer. It's often like that with gut infections too. Sometimes on a test, we'll see just H. pylori first. But because I know that over 90% of the time, if you have H. pylori, you have blastocystis hominis too. You know, I always want to do a retest after I've done my H. pylori protocol to see, okay, you know, did we get rid of the H. pylori first of all? But second, did we flush out any of these other hidden infections that we didn't see initially? Did we peel back the layer of the onion and reveal something else? And oftentimes you will see that blastocystis hominis or diantamoeba fragilis show up on a retest. And that's always, I feel great progress because we've gotten to that deeper level. Now we're seeing some other things that were there all along, but we just couldn't see them right away. Yeah. And I know sometimes for a patient, it may seem a little bit discouraging because they've just gone through cleansing and they expect for everything to be perfect. And while one thing is gone, there may be something else. I see that in the practice all the time as well. And just as you said, I said the same thing that this is actually progress. You know, these things were there and they're the ones that are contributing to all of these symptoms that you've had for so many years. So we got one. Now we see what else is there. We're going to get cranking on that one. 
Yep. And a lot of times you can see other factors that are improving. So I always like to point out, it's like, okay, well, now we're seeing some new infections, which is good. I see this as progress. But, you know, let's look here and, oh, you got rid of the yeast because we know that candida tends to overgrow more with low stomach acid and H. pylori. So got rid of the H. pylori. Now your yeast is dealt with. And, oh, look at this. Your digestive enzymes are improving because we know you need hydrochloric acid to stimulate your pancreas to make your protease, amylase, and lipase to digest your proteins, fats, and carbs. So that's improving. And your calprotectin has come down, which is a marker of inflammation. So the inflammation in your gut is improving. And maybe your secretory IgA, which is a marker of gut immunity, that's gone up. So you have a healthier first-line defense in your gut. So we can see often these things where you know, it's like you're in the journey, you're getting there, but there's still work to be done. But we can see these little improvements where you can go, we know we're on the right track, just got to keep going, but we're no, we're doing good. Now, if someone does have an infection like blastocystis hominis that comes out after the H. pylori is eradicated, what are some of your favorite ways to eradicate that? Yeah, with those, you know, herbs can often work well for that too. You know, usually some of our antiparasitical super killers in the herbal world are things like artemisia, which is also known as sweet wormwood, or things like, um, a lot of times I'm using the, the artemisia in combination with black walnut, maybe oregano, maybe clove. You know, I'll often use several combination formulas. Sometimes I'll add something like mimosa pudica. That one's a nice one for parasites too, kind of works as a rotor rooter in the gut, smothers and suffocates them. And so we find, you know, what the person tolerates, what other infections they have, and then try to develop the best protocol that's going to cover all those things. That's great. And do you use any pharmaceuticals at all for parasites? Parasites sometimes, you know, there are some parasites that are harder to kill than others. Um, things like Entamoeba histolytica, um, really, really nasty parasite. Uh, it can actually get into the liver and cause liver abscesses. It's one you definitely don't want to mess around with. That one does not seem to respond very well to herbs. So that one I often do recommend that people seek out a prescription for that. Um, Giardia, that one, you can do it either way, herbs or um, antiprotozoal medications. The thing is with Giardia, a lot of people become very sensitive to foods and supplements and medications. And I found that they sometimes just can't tolerate any herbs. They're just too overly sensitive to everything. And I haven't had a lot of luck in some cases trying the herbs. They just react. And so that's another one where I may refer out to say, let's maybe try an antibiotic, get a prescription for that. We can knock it out a little more quickly and then you're going to tolerate things better. Things like the blastocystis hominis, again, you can do that one either way. I've seen it successful with antibiotics and with uh, herbs. Now, one of the best antiprotozoal medications that I like is one called Alinea. Uh, that one's A-L-I-N-I-A. -I -I -A. Really great broad-spectrum antiprotozoal. You know, pretty much will get rid of most of the protozoa parasites that you see on these lab tests. Um, usually there's very few side effects too. It's, it's pretty well tolerated. 
Um, the thing about this one I always tell people is, you know, the prescription Alinea is the only available option, that brand name in the U.S., which is extremely expensive. I think uh, like a three-day course, which is what the CDC recommends for more acute infections, that'll run you something like $700 if you don't have insurance. So there are generic versions of Alinea available, however. So I'll often suggest that people, you know, go to your doctor, get a prescription for Alinea, and then maybe check out an online Canadian pharmacy and you can get the generic that way, which is just a mere fraction of the cost. And I found it works equally well. So it's, you know, a much better option to try to get that. And, you know, they may need to use a longer course too, which, you know, especially given how expensive this medication is, and if you're doing a longer course of it, a lot of functional docs will recommend maybe two courses of 10 to 14 days each for a chronic parasite. So we're not just talking three days here either. We're talking maybe doing 10 days on, then a 10-day break, then another 10 days on. So that's going to be a lot more pills and extremely expensive if you're looking for the brand name. Yeah, and I love Alinea. I actually have personal experience with it. Uh, both my son and I got Giardia a couple of years ago. And at that point, he was only a year and a half. We are on well water and I didn't realize, but something went off with our filtration. And even though we don't drink that water, you know, he would obviously get a bath in that water and, you know, we cook food with it and, and wash everything in that water. And he started getting looser stools. And when I saw his more conventional pediatrician, she really didn't think much of it. And she said, you know, little kids get that it happens. And after a few weeks when it didn't resolve, I did the GI map stool test and I saw it. And what was interesting is he didn't seem like he was in any um, type of pain or any discomfort, but doing what I do and knowing what his stools used to look like and what they look like now, you know, in the diaper, I knew that something was going on. And so that's why I tested. And, um, you know, so his symptoms were kind of these looser stools. And then I said, you know what, I don't really have any symptoms, but let me test myself only because obviously I share everything with him and I'm always changing his diaper. And interestingly, I had it too. And it's not uncommon, especially for something like Giardia, for adults to maybe not have as acute of symptoms, especially if, you know, overall your immune system is functioning well. Um, but I still had it. And so we actually both did Alinea. And it, it, before we had met our deductible, I had to pay it was $560 for a three-day course for him. And I sort of sucked it up and paid it. But doing that actually got us to our deductible thresholds. And then after that, it was covered. And so the Alinea was free. So I'm like, all right, let's get another course. <laughs> let's pile on the Alinea. Um, but, you know, and to your point, it really didn't have any side effects. I took it myself and he took it and, you know, he was very, very young. And of course he took the pediatric dose, but he never seemed like he was in any pain or discomfort. I didn't see any other types of side effects. So it worked very well. And we did do a longer course as per the recommendation of the holistic pediatrician that we consult with for him. And we ended up doing about six days and then we waited 10 days and did another course of six days after that. Mm -hmm, great. Yeah, that is a nice thing is, you know, it is approved for kids ages one and up. They just have a liquid formula instead of the tablets that are used by ages 12 and up. So it's, it's a nice option when you, you have kids that 
get these infections too. I had one case. I, you know, I, I work as a consultant for a diagnostic solutions lab on the GI map. And I had this, um, there was, I can't remember how old he was. He's, I think he was about two, two and a half, somewhere like there. And he had the highest levels of Giardia and Cryptosporidium, which is another parasite I had ever seen. And it turned out he had gotten into some bat poop. <laughs> Oh, boy. And apparently, I, I, so I had to Google. It's like, you know, bat poop, you know, what do bats have? And it's like, they're a known source of things like cryptosporidium. And it's like, wow, I mean, just off the charts levels. And it's like, that's one case. It's like, I mean, he just got it, just got into the bat poop, really bad diarrhea and symptoms, you know, off the chart levels of these parasites. Like, okay, he's over one years old. Delinea is approved for over one years, you know maybe this would be a good choice to really knock it out because this is, this would be hard to knock out with herbs because such a high body burden of it, such the, the exposure must've just been astronomical. Yeah. And you know, also for pediatric cases, the liquid version, when I looked at the ingredients, you know, there's a lot of dyes and colorings. It was like neon pink. And so what I actually did, um, and this was just due to the recommendation of the holistic pediatrician that we see I got the adult dose and I cut the tablet in four. So it actually equaled the dose of the pediatric. And then the tablet actually had this sort of yellow coating on it. And I peeled it off. It only took, you know, 30 seconds to do. And then this way, I wasn't giving him all of the dyes and the colorings and the additives that are in the liquid. And I just crushed the capsule and put it in a little bit of applesauce. And he was totally fine taking it. Wonderful. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that's a problem. A lot of these parasites, you know, people always ask me, well, how did I pick these up? <laughs> you know, like, you said, I mean, well water, I mean, what, even if it was tap water that's chlorinated and, and, you know, going through a whole, the city water, uh, Giardia and Cryptosporidium, they are actually can be chlorine resistant, so they can make it through even tap water. I know in um, Portland, Oregon, they they just know that it's in the water and they're working on building a new plant to help filter it out. But I think it's, I can't remember if it's, you know, 2024 or what year, it's like six years out, I think, until they have this plant ready to go. So they just tell people, well, if you're, you know, immunocompromised and more susceptible to getting sick from this, just boil your water buy bottled water. They just know it's in the water supply. And for other areas, it's just occasionally maybe the chlorine fails or maybe it's just it gets in there and it's just resistant and you can get it through tap water. Swimming pools too. You know, all you need is a kid with poopy diaper in a swimming pool. And then you just get a mouthful, you swallow a little water and you could get crypto and giardia that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, H. pylori, a lot of people don't realize you can actually get it through saliva, which means kissing your spouse or significant other or even a family member. I'm sharing, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to, you know, oh, I'm going to eat my piece of pie. And then, oh, you got to taste this. Come here, you have a piece of my pie. And then they take a piece of the pie and, you know, eating the same off of the same piece of food, the same fork, the same cup, you know, sharing utensils and cups. You can actually share the H. pylori. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring this up because that was actually my next question for you about how communicable H. pylori is because I don't think people realize that. So in this case, then, if someone has H. pylori in the family, do you recommend that the rest of the family also gets treated or at least gets tested for it? I do. Yeah, especially the spouse or significant other, because there's a really high chance that they have it. And that's where I find the most difficulty eradicating the H. pylori in someone is 
they have their spouse or significant other who hasn't been tested and who keeps passing it back to them. So if I'm seeing the test, you know, time after time, we've done the protocol and this should be budging and it's just not, it's like we really need to get them tested too and get them on the protocol if they have it as well. So especially if that person has GI symptoms, definitely test. But even if they don't, you know, they could still be a carrier of it and maybe they're not showing symptoms at least yet. So good idea to test them too. Um, the nice thing too is the lab, you know, with the, the PCR testing, the, you know, the GI map is a full test that gives you H. pylori and a bunch of parasites and other markers. The lab diagnostic solutions lab also offers an H. pylori only test. And so that's nice. Say you have, you know, you have a family of five and mom has H. pylori and you want to know, does dad have H. pylori? Do the three kids have H. pylori? You know, we know stool testing for a family of five could get expensive. So sometimes like, well, if we can at least rule out the H. pylori aspect for everyone, that'd be great. So we could do the cheaper option and test every everybody with just the H. pylori test and at least, you know, see if that's an issue and, you know, get rid of it in the whole family, have everybody doing the protocol at the same time. So it's just not being passed back and forth forever. Yeah. Now, if someone has it, but doesn't have any symptoms, do you still recommend eradicating it? You know, it's a bit of a judgment call. You know, the thing is, you know, a lot of times people are having some symptom, you know, they're not perfectly well. I mean, if someone was just, I have absolutely perfect health, my energy is great, everything is just perfect. I mean, and it was a very teeny tiny level and no virulence factors. Maybe it's not an issue, but most people, there's going to be something wrong. You know, it's, oh yeah, you know, I have no gut symptoms whatsoever, but I've had this eczema on my scalp since I can remember. Or, you know, I just, you know, I'm just fatigued and I have low iron. You know, there's usually something that we can tie back to the H. pylori. So then I do figure that it is worthwhile addressing because, you know, it doesn't have to have the gut symptoms. You know, if it can be manifesting many other ways or it's maybe it's a, a newer infection for them. It hasn't led to the problems yet. You know, I'd rather nip things in the bud before it leads to issues down the road. You know, like I can tell you with myself, you know, I know there's some practitioners who they won't test anybody under the age of 18 or even 30 years old. And for me, I had ulcer-like pain when I was 12 years old in school. And I just thought, oh, it must just be the pressure from the tests and the stress and everything else and just, you know, some issue there. But now I know, looking back, that was H. pylori. And I wish someone knew enough to test me and get rid of it so I wouldn't had to suffer with that pain the gut pain for another 20 years before I did the stool test, found it myself and got rid of it. So, you know, how, and so how much, how many years before that did I have that? You know, I always had a fussy stomach growing up, you know, five, six, seven years old, I would just vomit out of the blue. And my parents would go, oh, better cancel the birthday party. She's got the stomach flu. You know, there's something going around. She must've caught it. And that was it. So I always had this fussy stomach. So I bet you I had H. pylori since I was very, very young. And again, if I would have been say treated as say a four-year-old or something, maybe I could have, you know, prevented all these GI issues from occurring in the future. Of course. And I completely agree with you. I think that if there's something 
in the test, you know, we know with the PCR technology, there's not really going to be a false positive. If it's there, there's no mistaking identity. Like you say, if it's there, it's there. So I always tell people, if we see something, let's get rid of it. Why take the chance of it doing something later? Even if there's a little bit, let's get rid of it so it doesn't cause an issue. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for all of this information. I so appreciate you being here and sharing all of this with our listeners. Thank you so much. No problem. I love talking about the gut because I've dealt with so many gut infections myself. So it's kind of my passion to educate people about this and to save them from years of misery like I went through. I don't want anyone else to have to go through that. It's it's awful. No, I empathize with anyone who's just dealing with these longstanding gut issues. It's It's just no fun and you shouldn't have to live like that. Oh, of course. And now that you've gotten rid of them, do you still test yourself every so often just to make sure or how do you maintain the results? I do like to do a stool test on myself at least once a year, you know, once or twice a year just to make sure. I actually just got my results back. I did a GI map on myself two days ago, (laughs) got the results back two days ago and all clear. Everything looked good. So, you know, I'm always happy to see that, but I always like to make sure because you never know. I mean, you eat different foods, you visit different states or countries, you know, you can get exposed to these things. So I think it's always good to kind of spot check and just make sure. Because again, I want to head things off and, you know, prevent any issues if I can detect it right, you know, as quickly as possible after an infection, then I can stop it before it develops and snowballs into something much worse. Exactly. And the nice thing is that there are all of these natural methods that we can use and they don't have to take a long time. So it's not about being afraid to necessarily eat new foods or go to places or do things. You know, we want to live our life and it's just nice to know that we have these tools and we could do the testing and then see what's going on. And for everyone listening, you know, with the stool testing, there is some insurance coverage. It just depends on your insurance. There's typically a co-payment of, you know, around $175 and then a lot of insurance insurances will cover the rest. And if someone doesn't have insurance, uh, the GI map typically runs around $375. Um, and the H. pylori only test, um, what is it, Lisa? Is it 109 or 120, I think? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about 109, I think. I know it's just a little over 100. Great. Yeah. So the tools are available so that we don't have to guess anymore and we could actually find out what's in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for having me on. As we just heard, H. pylori and other gut infections can have a significant impact on heartburn, GERD, and other digestive symptoms. I'll tell you more about what we did for Candace in just a second. But first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, Lisa Pomeroy, please visit healthmysterysolved.com and go to episode number 20. There you'll see all the detailed show notes so you can reference everything we talked about and all the links that Lisa and I discussed. And for Candace, we tested her stool with the GI map test from Diagnostic Solutions Labs and found H. pylori with several virulence factors, as well as a few other dysbiotic bacteria. In addition, she had low digestive enzyme output, low good bacteria, and low secretory IgA, which signifies lower gut tolerance and immunity. So we had our work cut out for us. Candace was already taking digestive enzymes, but the one she was taking had some betaine HCL in it. And while that's normally good, H. pylori is easier to kill in a more alkaline environment. So we changed her to a vegetarian enzyme without acid called Digestime V. 
We then did an eight-week H. pylori protocol that I use in cases like hers using a product called Pyloracil from Orthomolecular Labs. We used two capsules twice a day and also added additional 1,000 milligrams of mastica on top of that at one capsule once a day. Immediately following this protocol, we used another natural antimicrobial formula called GI Microbex for 10 days, followed by FC Cytal, another antimicrobial formula, for 15 days. The first eight weeks was for the H. pylori, and then the Microbex and the FC Cytal for the additional few weeks was to kill off the other bacteria that were overgrowing. Now, while doing this, I put Candace on a strong probiotic called Orthobiotic 100, which has 100 billion organisms. So it's nice and strong to support our cleanse and to help repopulate her good bugs. We then finished it out with six grams of L-glutamine for a month, at which point the heartburn was completely gone and she no longer experienced the burning and a sore throat and the bloating and the burping was also no longer an issue. We retested her stool and were happy to see that the H. pylori was gone and the other bacteria were much more in balance. We continued with the L-glutamine to heal the intestinal lining for another three months, and then we changed her probiotic to more maintenance one called orthobiotic from the orthobiotic 100, and then her vegetarian enzymes to pancreatic enzymes with a little bit of betaine HCL, since now that the H. pylori is gone, it was okay to have the extra betaine, and the extra is actually very good to help prevent reinfection. It's been over a year, and she remains symptom-free. If Kanda sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you subscribe to this podcast because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. When it comes to solving your health issues, don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.